Welcome to Forward Thinking with Ryan Patelli, meaningful conversations between Ryan Patelli and the people he believes have trailblazed by being forward thinking in their field, industry, or even within real estate. Ryan is defining a new era of residential real estate. An unparalleled commitment to achieving excellence sees him as one of the most desired property and lifestyle advisors in the Twin Cities. Welcome back to another episode of Forward Thinking. Uh, I'm your host, Ryan Bertelli. Uh, I've got uh, two gentlemen in the uh, the studio today. Uh, we've got some good stories. We're going to talk some real estate. And if you are interested in wealth and generating some wealth and building a portfolio of real estate, you're going to want to listen to this thing um, all the way through. So Invictus Capital, uh, Dan and Anthony, welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for this is thanks for bringing us in. This is a cool little setup. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Welcome to our dungeon. Yeah, well, this place is amazing. <laughs> I've never actually been inside this. I mean, you mentioned earlier this used to be a, an art store. Yeah, I've been by a million times, but this is incredible. Yeah. So, tell me. Uh, so, I want to know a little bit about uh, both your backgrounds, uh, as I kind of was just you know alluding to. I mean, Dan, I know you uh, finance fitness a little bit. Anthony, you're more entrepreneurial. You know writer, no successful book writer. <laughs> so um, how did everything kind of come full circle with you guys and, and talk a little bit about uh, the journey to get to the business where it is today and what that looks like? Well, the journey's in progress still. So it's definitely definitely a journey that's still still happening. But do you want to start with your background, Anthony? I feel like your story. My story? Yeah, yours is way more fun. So... Okay, so for me, I guess the thing that you have to know, Dan's going to tell his part of the story, and he's the corporate finance guy who went straight out of school, thinking college, and then go corporate, and then like get that good job. Like for me, it was different because I, <laughs> coming out of college, I was getting fired from a lot of jobs. So Why? I have severe ADHD. That's what I blame. <laughs> I blame my ADHD. Like the fact that I'm like... When I was younger, I, I was very unfocused, undisciplined, unreliable, which makes for a bad employee. And I was very bad at, I would say, working hard for other people where the inputs that I was putting in weren't correlated to the outputs that I was going to receive. So if I'm a salaried worker and I put in 40 hours, great. If I put in 80 hours, okay, like I put in twice as much work, earned the same amount of money. And when I was young, I reasoned, okay, well, I could do the same amount of work in 20 hours. And then just check out for the rest. And so I figured out ways. And, and this ties into something Bill Gates said, which is I'd rather hire a lazy A player than a hardworking B player because the lazy A player figures out how to get the work done in less time. And that was me, except for I think the second part of his statement is that with that extra time that they would keep doing more. Hmm. And I never did. I just figured out ways to get the job <laughs> done. And then I would check out and people my boss would come around. And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I finished. <laughs> it's all I finished, done. I finished yeah. two hours ago. <laughs> yeah. And, and for some reason, like that never went over well. And so that was a problem. So I knew coming out of school, I needed to go find my own path, which I wasn't entrepreneurial at that point. I wasn't like the kid that had grown up with the lemonade stand or getting his buddies to go and shovel like driveways. And I wasn't plucking flowers and selling it to the neighbor. I wasn't right, that Gary kid. V. Yeah. Right, Gary v. yeah I, I, I was not Gary V. Like if he had the entrepreneurship like in his blood, I didn't. And so... I, but I did want to be free. I knew that. I didn't want people telling me what to do or where to be or like how to do the work that I was doing. And so I went off and I became a professional rock climber, which sounds like kind of cool, but it really just meant that I wasn't making very much money and I was living the life that I wanted every day out in the wilderness, which is cool. Because you could do what you want, when you wanted, exactly. on your own schedule. Exactly. You weren't punching the clock. 
Yeah, and the ramifications of that lifestyle and, and, and like being able to live on my terms came to a head when I tried to marry a woman. I went to her parents and said, I'd like to marry your daughter. And they go, well, that's great. How are you going to provide for her? And I was like, ooh, yeah. Okay. I didn't think about that. That's a, good, that's a good question. And at that point, I didn't really have a good answer. But I, I went into my tool chest of like, what am I good at? What can I make money at? And I had the skill as a writer and a storyteller. And so I <laughs> made the very logical jump. I look back on it now. I'm like, that was a really stupid logical jump. But I look back and I was like, you know who makes money? Stephen King makes money writing science fiction and fantasy stories. That's what I'll do. So I started writing novels. And um, within four years, I'd written 12, 12 novels and was doing pretty good there. Um, but again, wasn't making a ton of money. And it wasn't providing the lifestyle that that woman wanted. And so we ended up breaking up. I found myself living in the back of a van, super in debt. And a buddy came to me and was like, this is not a good setup for you. Like, you're literally living in a van down by the river. Like, you're that guy. Uh, he's like, let's build a business together. And that was the turning point of my life, really, where it was like, oh, okay, I don't know anything about building businesses, but let's see if we can take a crack at this. And we built a high-rise window washing company, which utilized our skills as rock climbers, our network of rock climbing buddies, because we could get up on these ropes and do these jobs way quicker at a way lower cost than the competition could. And that like ignited my passion for for building businesses. And for the last decade, that's what I've been doing to one degree or another is just multiple businesses. And real estate is just another avenue of that. That's been the primary focus for the last two years. Yeah. Um, started about seven years ago with my own little triplex, like started really small and then started scaling from there. Uh, and met Mr. Kruger over here in 2019 when we formed Invictus Capital and um, I won't tell you like what exactly that we do yet. We'll bury that part of the story, but I think <laughs> yeah, keep listening. Yeah, now we got to go to Dan's story. <laughs> yeah, Dan, follow that up. Mm. Yeah, so mine is almost the polar opposite. I would say I grew up in household of artists, uh, which means that there wasn't a whole lot of investing money talk in the household. It was just. Artists don't care about money, right? They care about being happy. They care about creating art. And so there just wasn't a lot of financial literacy in my household growing up. Um, and there was also a decent amount of financial stress because of, mm. you know, the whole starving artist thing. It's a mm -hmm. thing. Like if you're mm -hmm. an artist, whether you're an artist by trade or you're just an artist who is working in some kind of job, which is my parents, they weren't actively making money in art, but they were just kind of working because they spent their whole lives, you know, learning how to be artists. And, you know, the whole money thing just wasn't a concern. But that comes with a lot of stress. And so I kind of grew up in a household where everything was everything was scarce. Um, we didn't have a lot of money. And it was very important for my parents that I um, go to college, get a job at a big company, and get benefits and make money so I don't have to have And be there for 30 years and, you know, retire. Get your gold exactly. watch. That, they, they were fully sold on that kind of version of the American dream because, you know, they grew up in the... Uh, my dad was born in the 40s. My mom was born in the 50s. And so they grew up in the 60s and the 70s. And that whole starving artist thing worked back then. Uh, but in the 80s and 90s and today, um, pretty much ever since we went on the gold standard, uh, inflation starts. And that really eats you alive if you're living on that kind of lower end of the income. Uh, spectrum. So, so th their lives got increasingly more stressful. Um, and so I come in in the eighties and I'm growing up in the nineties. And, and so I'm kind of seeing them deal with the fact that they never prioritized income or investing. And there's just kind of this big incentive to like, okay, go, go to college, get a job, get benefits. So you don't have to worry about this stuff. And so for myself, that was just kind of the thing I had to do just because that's what I grew up in. 
And I didn't really put a whole, whole lot of thought into it because that aligned with the, you know, the whole American dream that everyone pitches. So I'm like, okay, that's the path. Took me a while to figure out that that wasn't really the path for me. So went to school, studied finance, always been obsessed with investing uh, and or trading and anything kind of Wall Street-y. It was just always right up my alley. And so I went to school for finance and I was thinking, okay, I'm going to get a job as an analyst. I'm going to make great money and all this stuff. And I go to work at my first job out of college and all of a sudden I realized that, you know, once those student loans kick in, I'm actually worse off than I was before <laughs> college. Like I might have a bigger salary, but my net money left over was actually less. I was like, this kind of sucks. So I'll just work harder, try to get promoted and get the raises and do that whole thing. And, you know, years go by, I tried a couple different companies and on the third one, on my fifth year of uh, working in the corporate world, I just kind of realized that this wasn't for me, right? I was trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. And that whole corporate lifestyle and that approach to life, for me, wasn't a good fit. For some people, it's great. They love it. For me, it just wasn't scratching the itch that I needed. And it was around that time, uh, actually a few years before that, that I met my wife. And for those of you who know her, very social, very active on social very media. Very bubbly, very outgoing. Shares everything with the world. I'm the complete <laughs> opposite, right? So she and I got into this uh, fitness thing together. And because she's so open and sharing with the world, um, this, this activity got shared with everybody through social media. And so we started getting a lot of inbound questions. Like, how are you guys, you know, getting these kind of results? Can you show me how to do this? And that kind of turned itself into a little business without me even really trying. Um, I got really analytical and, and uh, dialed in on how to control uh, my physique and gain weight and lose weight and all that stuff. And all these people kept coming and asking questions. And so I started, uh, without trying, I started a business as a nutrition coach and realized when I was doing that, that that was amazing. To Anthony's point, my inputs actually equaled my outputs. In the corporate world, I could work my ass off, might get a little bit of a raise, might get a promotion, but it wasn't one-to-one -one correlation between how much I work and what I actually get out of it. Yep. So then I was like, oh, wait, I'm actually entrepreneurial. I didn't think I was, but this feels really good and I like it. And it was about a year after that that I started to go down the real estate rabbit hole. And it was because I was sitting in my corporate job, fully checked out. I was fully on the <laughs> entrepreneurial thing. And I was reading every uh, you know, personal development book, every business <clears> book. And I happened to, it's so cliche, but I happened to come across the audiobook for Rich Dad Poor Dad. And I was running really low on content because I'd listened to everything and consumed everything. Because I was there eight, 10 hours a day doing this mindless work. So I just kept listening to audiobooks and podcasts all day. Happened onto that one. And I was like, oh, my God, this is this is cool. Because uh, I was going to college in 2008. And so I just had this kind of um, stigma in my mind for real estate that it was risky. Because right? mm -hmm. as I was becoming an adult. 2008, was, obviously, we all know what yeah. happened then. So, so in my mind, got that in real mind. estate equaled risky. And then I started learning a little bit more about the multifamily business model. I was like, oh, wow, this is an addictive rabbit hole. And I went hard. And then. The rest is history. Yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> something, something real quick uh, that you mentioned there that I think is worth pointing out is that you said when you started building that business, your inputs and your outputs were now matched one to one. And what I would actually add to that is what's one of the craziest things is like when it comes to investing or entrepreneurship or skill acquisition is that it's not one. Yeah, exactly. It's not one to one. It's exponential. It's quadratic. 100%. So like you get the benefits of that compounding interest yeah. of whether that's skill or money. Like once you put that in your favor, like the game's over. And to your point before, like maybe people do like the corporate route. Maybe they don't, but maybe they've never stopped to think like there's an option outside of yeah. that. Yeah. And it's changing right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so rapidly. 
because um, we grew up in the same era, same thing, parents, but like now you're, you know, you're seeing different ways to make money. I mean, whether it's, you know, through YouTube, through TikTok, through whatever, like all these other platforms, right? Like there's wealth being generated even at a younger age. I mean, look at Bitcoin, look at cryptocurrency, look at some of these things that like our parents would just like, they wouldn't even, my parents would not, not even put their credit card in over the internet mm-hmm. at that time. Like mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's how old school that they were. I, I was talking to my dad recently. My dad was in the military, then came out and he was like C-level executive at like big companies like Graco. And uh, he's talking to me, he's like, if I had the access to like the information that you have now, he's like, I would have been doing what you were doing back in the 80s. And I was like, yeah, but you didn't, right? Like you didn't have social media so you didn't have the ability to connect to all the different humans in the world and you didn't have access to youtube and google so you couldn't learn all the things that we can learn now so it's just like the gatekeepers across the board are are gone and the ability to make money mm-hmm. on your terms now mm-hmm. is 100%. it's open to everybody 100 percent uh looking at the uh, uh you guys are like managing 200 some units now it looks like 28 million, you know, kind of under management and like 14 properties. I'm sure that's kind of like 38 million now after, I mean, we closed on one a couple of weeks, it's probably okay. closer to 49. Okay. Yeah. Things are growing. So, yeah. So talk about how then, you know, kind of Invictus like just started coming about and we'll, we'll take a, a you know, a uh, blast in the past as far <laughs> as like how Dan and I actually, you know, really did connect, but uh, I, I want, you know, just a kind of a brief Invictus capital, uh, what you guys are, you know, like you said, it's it's grown. It's not 28. It's, you know, somewhere around 30, almost 40. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you didn't pick it up from our, our stories, right, we didn't start doing this together. We started independently. Mm-hmm. He, I think you were actually out in California when yeah. you first started, right? My, my very How did you guys meet, actually? Uh, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Midway yeah. through the story. So, so I'll give you mine. It's uh, actually because you intersect in the story, too. Well, yeah. Yeah. Because... Yeah, we all came together kind of at the same yeah, time. Actually, I, I, think I knew it. Dan and then all of a sudden Dan kind of was like, yeah, this guy, Anthony is going to like also be part of this deal. And, and we'll, we'll jump into Duluth. <laughs> yeah, we'll jump yeah, into yeah. we'll Duluth. And also I was, I was kind of like a little, I was like, okay, Dan, are you still like going to buy this property or not? So. <laughs> yeah. no, that's, I didn't, I kind of didn't realize that this was all kind of at the same time. It was. I kind of forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. So my, like I kind of mentioned before, I, I started going down the real estate rabbit hole. I was in the corporate world. I had this side hustle going with the nutrition coaching thing. And I was, I was making, uh, enough, I was making the same amount of money in my nutrition coaching that I was in my corporate uh, job, but I knew it wasn't scalable. And so I knew there had to be something else for me to really get out, found real estate, started, uh, aggressively going after that. And I got my first property. Um, I'd say probably seven months after I started going down that rabbit hole. And that was a little six unit. And so I did, did you take that one on your own? Yeah, that was, yep. That was just me. Um, you know, I bought it, it wasn't a big purchase. It was $475,000, which is pretty low in this area. Um, but it was manageable for me. And then dumped probably about 70, 80 grand in, in improvements. And so it was the, your classic kind of value add multifamily deal. You buy it for 475, you dump, you know, 70 grand into it. You refi uh, at, at a $600,000 valuation, take that capital, go get the next one, rinse and repeat over and over again. So I was like, this model is great. Keep doing this. Um, so I did a couple of those deals and then, um, that's kind of where all our paths started to intersect. So there was a deal, um, we just call it Duluth. It's on Duluth street <laughs> that you sent my way, but I, we'd never actually met in person right. or connected on social, but. And I, I was actually trying to think that through a little bit, even before this is 
I actually think we got connected because of fitness initially. That's what you said. Yeah. Because I worked for a company called Octane Fitness, and you know, again, you just you get connected through people, and you, know, mm-hmm. you see your wife, and you know, whatever, and you're just like, oh, okay. And but I kept following you, and then all of a sudden, like you were doing the real estate investing, and I remember like we were supposed to go to the cabin one weekend. Grayson, you know, uh, was was born, and uh, he got we got we were stayed home. He was sick or something. And I got this deal that came through and it was like one of those weekends I was just like, okay, like <clears throat> I'm just going to look at all my investors. And I was like, I don't, I mean, I kind of know them, but mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm just going to cold email and, and send it, you know, over to them and see if I get a response. You miss all the shots you don't take, right? He was the only one that responded <laughs> because everyone else was on break or they were over like in their own cabins. So, and the, the great and people st- say we work too much. <laughs> <laughs> and the great thing about this is, the the deal was actually floated to me initially by a wholesaler Mm -hmm. and as i dug deeper after the initial you know hey dan responded was like yeah like can i get some more you know information can i get the performer can i get some of the rents and like okay let me dig into it so i'm like i'm gonna start to actually do some work here and found out it was a wholesaler and i was like okay like I still need that information. And so I still need him. But he, then as I dug further, he wasn't even licensed. Mm. So it was like, okay, like now let's just try to find the original owner. owner. Yeah. Right. So I was like finding emails, phone numbers. I found her uh, address. I wrote a letter to her. Like I was sending emails to, I got no idea, text messages to who knows what phone number trying to get some of this information. Mm. And I remember when I finally got in touch with her, she's like, yeah, I'm selling this property. And I'm like, well, what, what are you asking for? And she's like, 2.4. And the wholesaler said 2.5. So I was like, ooh. I was like, ooh. ooh all right, all right, all right. <laughs> so I'm like, chalk one up for me already there. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it was. And that's how we got connected, like through, a you know, basically a blind email yeah. uh, on a potential deal, a potential opportunity that uh, now that you guys still hold 32 units uh, off of Duluth. And, and you know what's really interesting about that deal is in the years since we've had that, now it's been like two years or so. Yeah, I, just about. Oh, yeah, just over. Over here, yeah. And um, numerous other operators that we have relationships with are like, oh man, we were trying for years to get that property in particular. Like we were trying to get her to sell. Like, the seller was very difficult. She's very difficult. <laughs> she was very but, difficult. But it's all about like that timing, right? Like right yeah. place, right yeah. time and answering that email or sending the email. But you know what's funny? Because that took like eight or nine months to... It took a while. It took a while because yeah. I remember closing. It was like January and yeah. the following... Yeah, it was, yeah, it was the it, following year because... We walked out of closing. Hot. It was like it was hot when you sent it to me. When we yeah. walked out the first time. Very close. We closed in January, but it was funny because you slipped in the DMs with that, and like I thought it was spam at first because the numbers were too good. I was like two point four million for thirty two units. The rents are here. The uh, uh, you know there was like a, at least one hundred and fifty dollars or two hundred dollars delta between the in place rents and the market rents. I was like this is like the it's textbook. It's textbook <laughs> for a value add, and the guy that I. I don't know, just sent it to me cold. <laughs> this cannot be real. This is exactly what I want. And I reached out and I was like, yeah, send me some more info. And you did. I was yeah. like, maybe this is real. And then I met you in person at the property. I was like, this is real. This is real. It's a thing. Yeah, it was. <clears throat> done. It was uh, It was a point in timing. You know, to your point, Anthony, timing was right because like this was all pre-COVID. This was mm-hmm. all like, again, I was, there was a gentleman here that, you know, uh, does more commercial and I was kind of going down that avenue more is like this to your point like this seems you know a little bit more my style a little bit more you know you kind of take some of that emotion type out of it and uh 
I was just kind of hunting for some of those. And, you know, I had a list of kind of investors that I would go to every now and then. And when, you know, you don't hear from them, they kind of like, you know, they don't uh, respond or whatever, but it was just timing. Mm -hmm. It was from the deal to actually get in touch with her because the same thing. I remember other people saying like, we've been trying to get her to sell to us for years. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, what? Okay. Like right somehow, somehow I, I was able to connect with her, even though like, you know, it was, it was an a roundabout way. Um, I just, I never gave up. And that's the interesting thing I think for brokers and agents in general is like, you might have like, like a certain number of properties that you're always calling on and you have to keep following up with them because they might not be ready right now, but in like six months at that moment, life changes, just time happens. changes, things yeah, in their follow-up. lives. Yeah, exactly. It's and all about the follow-up. Like to rewind just a little bit. Like, so this, I, th- I believe the timing, if I understand it right, was about August or September of 2019. Yeah. It was Dan, August is when, when I sent it to yeah. him. Yeah. And Dan and I met at a conference in September of 2019. And the, the story there is interesting because like we're both really introverted people. We don't necessarily present like that on a podcast, but if you go to, if you see us at like a large event, we're going to be the guys that are like hanging back in the corner. Like literally I went to this event and I said, my goal is to meet one person. I go into the conference hall and there's all these tables and they're all full of people. And I find the only one that's empty in the back corner. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to sit there. Like, cause it's a two day event. I'm going to ease myself in. I don't need to meet that guy, that one person on day one. So I went and I hid in the corner and then like 10 minutes later, Dan comes and sits next to me probably like looking around and be like, okay, which table has the least room? Yes. Like, that looks less intimidating than everything else. And, and we struck up a conversation. We got lunch that day. We stayed in touch. Like there was a friendship that was brewing. It was not, either one of us was not looking for a partner at that point. Like we were going to learn and just network and make relationships. And the way I think about this is like going to the bar and just walking up to people, like to women and saying like, do you want to, you know, be my girlfriend? Like doesn't work. Like you have to go and just like, be cool and like create relationships. And it wasn't until about four months later until like December or so that like we had been staying in touch and doing projects, like little, not real estate things together. And then looked at it and was like, Hey, like our skill sets, like what you're trying to do and what I'm trying to do, like, why aren't we working together? Mm -hmm. And it happened to be that he had to, Dan had to lease under contract and was working on that. And so that was like the opportunity to come together and close that deal. And it was just like, we came into it very much like, hey, let's just see where this leads, not trying to force it. Force it. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're uh, onto something there as far as, you know, forcing it. As soon as you try to force it, it just never works. Yeah. You know? Or yeah. you have this mindset and, you know, somebody else has the other mindset. So, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely good to hear that. Yeah. And I think it's so important for people who are kind of trying to get in this industry to realize that, like, if you go into a conference or if you go out meeting people with the intent of trying to find a partner, it's not the right that's not the right strategy, right? Like Anthony said, you don't go into, uh, you know, trying to find a, a wife or a husband with that. You don't come out and just say that that's your intent. You let things develop organically. And when things fit together, they fit together. I think that's that's kind of why it works mm-hmm. because we weren't trying to make it work. It just made a heck of a lot of sense. Yeah. And the thing, like Ryan, you said something there, which is like really important when it comes to partnerships. And I think people get this wrong is like you have to want to go to the same de- destination. Like you both have to want to get to the same goal. And then the part people miss is that you have to want to get there at the same speed. Mm-hmm. Right. And like, Cause a lot of times it's like, Oh, I want to build, I want to go there and do this thing, but I go fast and that guy, the, my partner goes slow. Well, that's going to create friction. And so it took a long time 
for Dan and I to feel each other and our relationship out enough to be able to, to one, look and say, okay, your skills are complementary to mine. What you're great at, I'm not great at. What I'm great at, you're not great at. So like, it's a, it, that's a good match there. And then, yeah, we're trying to get to the same place and our speeds are aligned. Mm. We, we tried to bring in another partner mm. at one point and almost immediately we realized, oh my God, we want to go to the same place, but the speeds at which we move as a group completely different. different. I would say that he was actually the type who was coming in to the relationship with the intent of getting married from day one. (laughs) Yes. And so we're kind of like, no date, no first date, no nothing. You know, let's just just walk down the aisle. He didn't even want to dance a little bit. (laughs) From first conversation, my goal is to get X amount of this company. That's kind of what it came down to. It It just wasn't organic, right? And it just felt forced and he was really talented, really great artist. He kind of had this marketing kind of skill set there but just didn't work well i think that's what makes you guys and separates you a little bit too is just being diligent about the deals right Mm -hmm. because i feel like that's another side of it you know especially for our listeners out there because i opened with yeah you want to build wealth but it's not going to happen overnight if you go into it trying to force a deal Mm. or being like oh i'll make the numbers work or i'll just do less of this or whatever it is it's not going to work you know you have to be diligent you have to be patient for the process right you got to have that process down and just follow it and if you do that things are going to work out but if you get fixated on you know these like timelines don't mean anything like i have to have x amount of things done by x Mm. date it's like no you have to do things the right way and however many things you do that fit those parameters great like for 2020 we did two deals right if we had gone into 2020 with the goal of doing a deal a quarter we would have forced some stuff that probably was too risky and mm-hmm. wouldn't have gone too well so we're like let's pivot and do what makes sense now something we talk about with our investors all the time is that the numbers don't lie but i can make the numbers say whatever i want sure and so you have to have trust in me as an operator and how i'm underwriting the deal but this also applies to us as individuals and Richard Feynman, like the physicist said something to the lines of like, you must never fool yourself. And also you are the easiest one to fool. Mm. Right. So mm. like we can make the numbers lie to ourselves sometimes because we want that deal to work. And that's when you start to get into some really questionable territory where you don't even realize you're starting to massage the numbers and lie to yourself <clears throat> sure. about what it can do. Sure. Um, you brought up something too. So you do have investors. What does that What does that look like? And I know even before Anthony, when we had lunch, I mean, you guys were looking at growing, expanding a little bit, maybe with a fund. You know, tell us what does everything kind of look like today and yeah. next steps for twenty twenty two. So yeah. in the, you go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I was just kind of give some of the background on on kind of why we have investors in our deals because initially when I first started, there was a big ego component. I was like, I want to own everything. I want to be the one who does everything. But how hard is that? It's really hard. (laughs) And it's really slow. And I realized that it didn't matter if I did all the things and got all the credit. Because if I did that, I would have a very small, little, modest portfolio that I'd say, that's 100% me. And I was like, I would much rather help build something huge and have a smaller piece of it and be able to point at that and say, like Apple, for example. I'd much rather you know, be a part of Apple and say, I was part of that, then have a little rinky-dink shop over here that's 100% owned by me, mm. right? Mm. So I was like, it took me a couple of years, or I would say it took me a two, maybe three, somewhere between the second and third deal where I realized that in order to get where I wanted to go, I wasn't going to be able to do it alone. And I simultaneously had 
all my close family and friends asked me what the heck I was doing because it seemed like it was going well. And they're like, can we just give you money and you can do it too? And I was like, <laughs> well, yeah, I guess. I guess that's a thing. And it made a lot of sense because you, in our business model, you deploy all your capital and you've got to wait until that point that you finish your business model to refinance, get your capital back out and go get the next deal. Yep. And I'm watching these deals pass yep. me by because you don't have any capital. Yeah. And yep. there's people who want to invest. So it's like win-win for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. The, the key there is like to recognize every deal needs three things. It needs somebody who has the time or the hustle to go do the actual work. It needs somebody who has the experience of knowing what that work is and it needs the capital, right? So we need capital, we need experience and time, but not all three of those things need to come from the same party. Mm -hmm. And once you understand that component, you can start to scale in ways that before you were so limited because you were trying to bring your own capital, your own time, your own experience. But for us, what was really important is in the beginning, we paid the tuition at the School of Hard Knocks on our own dime. Mm -hmm. Like we bought our first properties with our own money and we're scaling with our own money so that we could learn that process. And it was only later that, you know, for Dan, as his friends and family were coming in saying, I want to invest in these deals. And then we've partnered up and we started bringing in passive investors that we don't have prior relationships with, like people who are just, they see our podcast or read our book and they're like, oh, we want to invest with you. Like to be able to provide that opportunity now is like, it's changed the game a little bit for me in real estate. Before real estate was really just about the sticks and the bricks and like the, the, the families that we serve inside the building. But now it's this whole new component where we're working with one of the most sacred for me it's one of the most sacred things because like if you remember my story it's like eighty thousand dollars in debt like living in the back of a van like i know exactly the value of a dollar when you're trying to weigh the pros and cons of like do i fill up my car with gas or do i buy noodles like what's my choice here so like when what are my priorities here exactly when an investor and when when the vans are home like then you're like i don't know i really do need that gas like (laughs) so when somebody like gives us their money invest with us in a deal like it's really cool. Well, first of all, it's really rewarding. Well, and you have that experience. Yeah, yeah, and you have that experience and you can show that because it was on your own dime. Yeah. You know, from, from the very beginning and, and you learned it. It's not like, I want to do this with zero experience. I want your money. Yeah. Right? Like, and I think that's the difference, you know, even today for some people because you, you also got to look at the timeline as far as when you started, right? Like, <clears throat> where the market was, the... People remember what happened, you know, when they had the single family home portfolios, but there was still very little inventory even three, four, five years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. So to build a portfolio of single family homes was pretty difficult. Yep. So to take down like a Duluth or something that had 32, like in your mind, like, okay, 32 doors versus me trying to buy 32 homes, like different. Exactly. Game changer, yeah. Game changer right there for, for a lot of people. But I feel like a lot of other people were realizing that at the same time because it was so difficult to buy and make the numbers work for single family. Mm-hmm. You had more people you know, gravitating towards those multifamily mm-hmm. type units, which are even more difficult to come by. <laughs> but you got to, but to your point earlier, you got to continuously follow up with those people because I mean, how many homeowners or landlords get the same call Every year, every mm-hmm. month, you know, it's and, a huge relationship game. I mean, in the multifamily space, because you've only got honestly a handful of guys who own the majority of things. Right. So, if you're not in that little network and you don't know at least the brokers, if not the actual owners themselves, you're gonna have a really tough time being competitive because they like to work with guys they know. Yeah, and so that brings me up to a point though for like partnering with you guys, mm-hmm. right? Like, or you know, working with somebody who is established. 
um, not just from a, Hey, I can do it on my own. Right. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people want that. Yeah. But when they realize how difficult it is, it's, it's hard. So mm-hmm. to partner or to be an investor and they can, you know, come to you and they can, you know, either give money, they can give time, they can, you know, put in the sweat equity or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like there's other ways to make that deal, you know, kind of work on their end. Yeah. Um, if they want to learn the ropes or if they just want to hand you a check. Yeah. Yeah. And, and most of like the type of investors that are, that we love working with, like there's a couple of different types, but generally there's a theme where they, they probably like their W2. Maybe they're a professional like doctor or lawyer. Maybe they're a small business owner who's been really good at building their business and like reinvesting back into that business for years and years and years. So now that's like their one really big golden egg. And they're like, Oh, I need to diversify. I don't, because if I can't leave my business, I, it's my one <laughs> income stream. So like, what do I do? And so the way that we partner and it's a new concept for a lot of people. Like when we talk about what's a syndication, people are like, I, I'm not familiar with that. concept." Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit, your strategy, your philosophy and, yeah. and, and dive into that a little bit more. Cause it is newer. I mean, it's a buzzword mm-hmm. you know, for still a lot of people syndicating a deal or syndication. Right. So um, dive into that a little bit as far as like your, your strategies, your philosophies on that. Yes. So maybe just to lay out real quick, what a syndication even is. Yeah. It's like it's just a way for investors to pool resources. Remember those three things: time, experience, capital, to go and acquire an asset together. And so, typically, the way that our deals would work is there's two two types of partners in a deal. There's the general partners, and there's the limited. And really, what that's fancy speak for is saying one group are the active investors who are finding the deal and they're running the deal and operating, doing all the work. The other group, the limited partners, they're the passive partners. So they bring the capital. They get the benefits of owning the real estate. They get the cash flow appreciation, tax benefits, all that great stuff. But they, they don't have any other risk in terms of liability with the bank or litigation. And they don't have to do any work. And like when I explain that, people are like, okay, I guess I kind of get that. But then when we, I like to use an analogy called the jumbo jet investing strategy, which I think once you hear that, you go, oh, okay. Because we're, we're already syndicating in so many different aspects of our life. Like if you wanted to fly from New York to Paris right now, you would just get out your phone, buy a ticket on Expedia, and then go to Delta and get on a plane. You would, in exchange for your money, get a seat on that plane where there are trained professionals, pilots, flight attendants, flight control, who are then going to fly you from New York to Paris. So you didn't need to go and get your pilot's license or buy a plane or fly yourself there, right? You just paid a ticket to get on the plane, and then the general partners or the pilots and the rest of the team are going to do all the work. And so... You're already doing this in so many different areas of your life. Most people just don't realize you can do this with a, a big commercial building. I love that analogy, by the way. Yeah, no, I think it's a great way to, <clears throat> to put it in perspective because it's such an intimidating word. People hear that, they're like, syndication, what the heck it's is scary. that? Yeah. The jumbo jet analogy, I think, is a great one. But I think that one of the big pieces here is like, yeah, it's a lot of work, but also, uh, to your point, there are some barriers to entry that a lot of people don't realize are there. A, the network piece that we kind of mentioned is takes years to cultivate those relationships. And another big one that Anthony mentioned there, and he kind of slipped in real quick, I want to make sure it's 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 noted, is that you have to take out a really big loan to buy these properties, right? Mm-hmm. Millions of dollars, right? And that uh, that liability, that risk is on the general partners, the active guys. So the passive investors get an opportunity to invest in an apartment building and they don't have to be on the loan, right? Because that's usually the biggest risk in a real estate mm-hmm. deal. You might go and, let's say, use a house, for example. You want to buy a $100,000 house as an investment property. You're probably going to put twenty five grand down in cash, right? Something like that, 
And that means you're getting a loan for $75,000. So you might have put in $25,000 of your money, but if that deal goes south, you lose your 25 grand and you're on the hook for 75 grand in the bank. When you remove that risk from the equation, that changes the paradigm quite a bit for investors. So I think that's something that's, I think one of the most important pieces is not having that risk as a passive investor, but still getting all the benefits, cash flow, the equity, the appreciation, the tax benefits. Without that big risk, I think is huge. Mm -hmm. Aside from all the work that's going to it. And it is a lot of work. I mean, a little bit. (laughs) I mean, you you mentioned, I mean, I don't know how many you closed on this year, but in 2020, right? Only only I say only two deals, but still, two deals is still a lot, right? Like if there's a great deal, if, the, if yeah. they're the right deals, exactly. it doesn't matter if it's you know two deals or five deals or ten deals. Like yeah. again, they only do if, good ones. If, if they're two right deals, that that's the game changer. So um, because if you do two bad deals or even one bad deal and it's only two deals, then they're going to start to offset one another and they're going to start to look like crap, right? Mm-hmm. Like then that uh, affects you from getting more capital and how you underwrite, you know, other stuff. So, or you might look at taking more, more risk the next time to offset the other, like there's just so many things, right? So doing it from the up and up and, you know, being able to really dissect. And I think that's where a lot of people, they hear real estate investing and they want to be able to do it. But I think really it's the expertise and the numbers again and dissecting that and really thinking about, how this looks and feels because I think if, well, I know if you get that wrong, basically then you're, you're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> so. Warren Buffett is, everyone says this, it's all over the place. Everyone's heard it before, but first rule of investing is don't lose money. Second rule of investing is see rule number one. <laughs> and so we take that to heart and we always focus on the downside and we've got really high hurdles for our deals to hit. Right. So there's got to be a huge cushion there for things to go very wrong before anything comes close to losing money. And so that means there's years where we just don't do a ton of deals. For a lot of guys, that, that drives them nuts. Right? They want to be in, they want to be active, they want to be investing, and they've got to you know keep transacting. But we stick to those. Do you lose brands. investors because of that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, 2020, there was nine months where just nothing happened. Yeah. And so we and people did pull things. Did people pull money? Or? Well, people, no. people didn't or necessarily just, pull money, but like if you, you only had $50,000, let's say, that you wanted to invest for the year and somebody else had a deal, you know, I got to put my money to work because inflation's eating away at it. Sure. And, and so that that can really you know motivate people. Get it. Get it. It's just you know we do good deals. Yeah. Good risk what are you going to invest here with? And here, uh, yeah, six. I think about we did six deals this year. Something yeah. interesting that's really worth pointing out here that I think and probably most people aren't aware of is that when it comes to large multifamily or commercial assets, like the ability of the operators, the skill matters quite a lot. And it's because of how these buildings are valued, which is fundamentally different than how like a single family or a duplex is valued. And I think once people understand that distinction, um, it, some light bulbs go off. So if you have a single family home right now or a duplex or a triplex, my first property was a triplex. And within nine months, it had appreciated by $125,000. How so much did you buy for? I put in $7,000, 7500 So that's good. So that was a that's pretty good, good return. Good. <laughs> but, but let's think about that because that value was uh, derived based off of comparables, right? Sure. So that meant that the other properties in that area had experienced a wave of organic appreciation. Yay me. But that's only because like Ted down the street sold his house at a profit. Let's say COVID hit, he's out of work, and now he has to sell his home, and he has to take a hit on it. 
well, now that affects the valuation of my home, right? Right. That sucks. I hated that. I like not being in that in control over the valuation of my building was something I really disliked. So once you get to five units and above into the commercial space of apartment buildings, the way that they're valued is different. It's based off of the income approach, which means the bank is valuing the building based off of how much income it produces. So how profitable of a business is this? And this is where the skill of the operator comes in because mm-hmm. not all businesses are created equal. Mm-hmm. Some are run better. Some are have tons of expenses. Some have really low expenses, right? So like your ability to then go in and derive value, that's great because it puts control in our hands. But if you're just looking to do this on your own, thinking that you want to go the active route, just realize that you're playing it in a higher league where the consequences are bigger. The rewards are also much bigger. Yeah. That yeah. makes, that makes a lot of sense. Buildings effectively valued based on how well the operators operate it. Mm-hmm. Right. So we say all the time that you want to bet on the jockey, not the horse. Right. You can have a great building in a really great area, all the stars align, perfect deal on paper. You give it to a, an inexperienced uh, or just unqualified operator and mm. they'll run into the ground. You can give a really great operator. Mm a really crummy deal and they'll make it as good as it possibly could be. So we always tell our investors who are kind of coming into this and it's a new concept that they really need to spend all their time vetting the operators, finding mm-hmm. those rock star uh, groups to work with. And then the deal is kind of secondary, right? You got to find those good guys to partner with first and then good deals will follow. Makes, makes a lot of sense. Uh, so how would you source some of the deals? I mean, obviously people like myself, but like, as I alluded to earlier, like I thought I wanted to get more into commercial and yeah. then, I actually reversed that and actually have been spending more of my time in the residential market and I mm-hmm. haven't done a commercial deal since. I mean, it's it's funny how that works, but you know, the the so market changes the, one, the timing. Yeah. You got the one yes, one the one golden egg, right? <laughs> it was it was a good egg. Yeah. I mean, well, and that's I mean, again, going back to timing, but the way I looked at it too was like I thought and I, I you need to cut your teeth, you know, in a little bit, but then when the residential market was, you know, going at a different clip too and it was just like Again, I was one individual trying to do both. I was trying to go down this you commercial route cash. and I was trying to like service my my residential and my the homeowners, right? Like I was trying to and I was trying to choose and I was just like, I'm I'm fighting this battle. So I mean, obviously I know, you know, uh, agents and brokers, you know, uh, are always looking to find deals, but how do you like, you know, source them? Then obviously you got to do your due diligence, everything else. And you know, I mean, do you reach out to the actual property owners too? I'd say, I mean, the, the one of the biggest pieces is it's very similar to kind of any real, uh, real estate game, like what you're doing now with residential, it's relationships, right? So mm-hmm. you build quality relationships and you maintain those. And it takes a really long time to do that. But once you do that, you're that first call, right? Whether it's a broker that you've got a great relationship or a seller who owns properties, it takes many years of, you know, following up, communicating well, doing what you say you're going to do and just basically showing up, which is kind of our it's core value. Like reputation <laughs> building, right? Yeah. yeah. You just sh- kind of show that you're a good guy who's going to perform and you're trust- trustworthy and uh, you form relationships with brokers and sellers and it takes years. There's yeah. really no way to expedite it unless you partner up with somebody who's bringing that to, to mm-hmm. the table. But that's the biggest ways we've got. Uh, since we're local here in this market, gives us a bit of a leg up. We can really curate those relationships well where a lot of groups that are investing out of state, they have to hop on a plane and they've got to go sure. and you know take a trip to, to build those relationships. 
doesn't happen quite as as easily as it does when we all live in the same town and we can go grab coffee and meet up with these people and form relationships. So the bigger one for us is relationships um, and just kind of curating those and maintaining them. And then Anthony, there's, there's a lot of stuff that we're doing. Yeah. So if you want to kind of fill in the gaps there, there's, this is the big one. I mean, there's just so much. But these days, one of our primary sources, surprisingly, is like the, the people that we've transacted with in the past, right? Like yeah. say the first deal comes to us through a broker. Well, if we're cool to the seller and we like, take time to get to know them and what their needs are and what they've built in their past. And a lot of the times the people who are selling, they've been in the game for a long time. So what they have multiple properties. So they have other properties. Yeah. And so it's not just that one. So yeah, you're always looking beyond the transaction that you're doing right now. So you're taking a long view and trying to play long-term games with long-term people because behind every deal, there's the potential for another 10 or 12. And it might not be from just that one person, mm -hmm. but that one person, if they've been in the business for 10, 20, 30 years, they know other people and those people probably have other properties. And when it comes time for them to sell, they're going to be like, hey, do you know anybody? Like, yeah, you and should you want to be these guys. You want to be the people that are yeah. brought up for sure. I'd say that's the biggest thing. He kind of slipped it in there, but he quoted a guy named Naval Ravikant, who has this uh, uh, phrase from his famous tweet storm. People should Google this if they haven't heard of this. Naval Ravikant, tweet storm. You'll find it. Yeah, it's called How to Get Rich Without Getting Lucky. So it's like very pertinent for yeah. this conversation. The title is cheesy, but the content is it's pure gold. gold. He's very philosophical, so it's not a cheesy get rich quick scheme. It's just philosophy. But he's got this one, which is my personal favorite, and I really want to get a t-shirt with this on it. And it's play long-term <laughs> games with long-term people. And that's that's our philosophy, and that serves us well because we're not trying to make as much money as possible on every single deal. We're looking at what are these long-term relationships mm. that we can form and how can we add value to these other people, regardless of how much money we might make mm -hmm. here? Because it'll always come back to us in the long run. And so we've had that philosophy from day one. I think that's a large, in large part, what's driving the deal flow to us is people can pick up on that yeah, and they yeah. like that. And there's so many guys out there that are gonna come in and throw lowball offers or be too aggressive too greedy and retrade and try to be skeezy to try to eke as much money out of the out of that one transaction as they can kind of like that wholesaler yeah. like yeah. it's not really bringing any value it's just trying to take money no one's going to do a deal with him again right but if we come in with that kind of philosophy of okay we just want to add value to you see if we can make a transaction happen and have a long-term relationship i mean that's that's how you build a business the, the thing with real estate that we always talk about is that it's the best get rich slowly but surely plan that there yeah. is Assuming most that wealth, that right? Day. I think, I mean, 89 or some 9% basically, you know, wealth is generated through real estate. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, but it's not overnight. It, no. it just, it's not going to happen that way. Otherwise is like, they're, they're trying to make a buck off. I mean, of we've, we've seen a, a pretty big spike in, you know, uh, younger wealth and, you know, making it earlier. Mm -hmm. And now where they deploying it, they're putting it into harder assets because they need that appreciation. They need the tax benefits. They need everything else that comes along with it. Mm -hmm. And it's real estate. It's always been real estate. It's not going to change. You're going to find your way, you know, to, or the wealth uh, through real estate Avenue than any other. Mm -hmm. You could sit there and try to play day trader all day long um, as much as you want, but it still doesn't compare. It's it, one of the things that as you start making more money and you're building wealth, and if you talk to really like wealthy individuals, like I'm talking billionaires, They'll tell you it's not about how like making the money; it's about keeping the money. Mm -hmm. Like keeping it's the hard part, especially in an inflationary environment where your money is currently being devalued, right? Like which we're in exactly. Like how do you keep your money? That's the big question, and one of the best ways has always been real estate because it's a hard, physical, real asset that we can't just manufacture out of thin air, right? Like it 
costs a lot. There's only so much land. So if you're looking for a good inflationary hedge or something that's going to help retain the value of your money that you've worked hard to earn, like real estate's the place to put it. Yeah. And I, to bank on that a little or bit more, a lot of the wealth managers that I, uh, yeah, Doge, Doge, Doge. <laughs> I just picked up on that. Yeah. I thought it was just going to slip yeah, that in. My thought was going somewhere. <laughs> Um, but yeah, a lot of the wealth managers is, it's exactly that it's creating that generational wealth, not just for them and holding on to it for, you know, the family Mm -hmm. and and everyone else. So let me real quickly, let's unpack this. Like we hear people say generational wealth all the time. What does it mean to you guys when you hear generational wealth? Go ahead. I was going to say, honestly, I don't have a explicit definition but i know that when someone says that the way my brain starts thinking is that is uh wealth that you can pass to your heirs mm-hmm. without it getting taxed or correct taken okay that, and that's where my brain goes to exactly perfect. like you so, so so that's perfect okay so let's that i want to suggest right here right now it's the first time ever is a new <laughs> definition because and it's, and it's 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 being recorded so here we go yeah it's a, yeah maybe not live Okay, so that is what I would say is legacy wealth, okay? Generational wealth is wealth that's generating itself. Okay, you can't do that. No, 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 no. Because because at its core, generational wealth that you're trying to leave to your your family and everything, it is money that's earning on itself and it's creating more wealth for itself. So it's generating into perpetuity. Like using compounding. So it is cute. So like the key is to find those assets that are going to allow you to keep generating more wealth throughout the generations. Okay, I'm done. No. <laughs> we'll get a t-shirt. <laughs> I applaud you. I applaud you. And He's a word. As, as, yeah, as Dan said, that, that's very words. cute. Yeah, I get it. Uh, something that's been a hot topic lately. Uh, you know, the affordability, rent control, mm. everything. I know you like to target. No I know you like to target St. Paul. Um, how's that? How's that going to affect stuff? Are, I mean, just as far yeah. as are now, are you going to look elsewhere? Yes. Um, and you know, I guess we've. And I'll, I'll give you my short philosophy, and you know, just my take on the rent control thing. I think it's a really bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand from a tenant's perspective when they hear that they think it's a good idea, but here's where mm-hmm. it's going to go bad: is when you can't increase the rents, okay, and the inflation that we're actually incurring, your building is actually going to be under uh, maintained mm-hmm. over the long term. So the building's not going to actually stay up to status quo. Mm-hmm. You're actually going to have more problems. Landlords, owners, they're not going to have the capital to fix that because they're not going to put in their own with no return on the end. Yeah. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the people that voted, uh, a certain way didn't follow that that string all the way through to the end. They saw this the the headline, three percent cap on rents, and they're like, "That sounds great," and they just stop thinking, and they vote for that. They don't look at what the long term effects are on that. And we've got umpteen million case studies of mm-hmm. how this plays out. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, that's it's you summarize it very nicely. So at its <laughs> core, what we have is like a it's a basic economics problem of supply and demand, right? The problem is people perceive that rent is too expensive. Okay, so why is it so expensive? It's because there's not enough supply and there's too much demand in relation to that supply, which then means that the price has to rise to this equilibrium, right? So the way to solve a supply demand in equilibrium, in equilibrium is imbalance. to create imbalance, there you go, is to create more supply, right? 
by creating more supply, now people have more options. And, and now the, the prices yeah. come down. The, the problem with rent control is that it caps that supply because now new investment isn't coming in, new development isn't coming in. It's creating less supply because what ends up happening, we see this in every market where rent control goes into effect, is that landowners largely convert to condos, which takes supply off of the market, and they then start renting to fewer and fewer renters. Because yeah. let's think about this. Like if I am a 22-year-old, I'm just out of school and I'm making okay money. Before in a normal free market environment, maybe I could only afford a one-bedroom apartment. But in a rent-controlled environment, I can afford a three-bedroom, right? So I want the extra space. I'm going to go take that. Well, I don't need that as a single male at 22 years old. But there's a family with three kids that does need that. Mm-hmm. Now I've just taken supply mm-hmm. off of the market for those families, mm-hmm. just exacerbating the supply demand issue. That happens all the time in New York. You yeah. even see extremely mm-hmm. wealthy people in rent control apartments. Well, the double-edged sword then is even the new construction, right? Oh, and, and now <laughs> I know, I know. As soon as it passed, right? As soon as it passed, yeah. mayor's going back and saying, "Well, no, 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 no. Like, <laughs> as soon as this is going to exclude." New. But how many projects stopped? Um, I know Bob years. Lux. Um, they had a project going. And they had their equity partner pull it yep. because they're like, absolutely, like, we're not going to get involved Ryan with this. Company shut down. They like shut down the Ford, you know, yeah. the Ford, uh, the apartment side, right? The the actual homeowner side, um, you know, ownership side. Different Those are still, stuff. but different. Yeah, right. So to get to supply, you need people to still be able to build. Yeah. And now they're not building. So it's going to make, it's going to make that even here's, more here's, of an uphill battle. The interesting thing about rent control, and we did a lot of analysis on this leading up to the St. Paul, putting this into place is that largely rent control as it's been enacted in many, many markets really wouldn't <laughs> affect what we do from an investment standpoint. But what they did in St. Paul is the most draconian policy that we've ever seen in the country. And it's because it wasn't created by, you know, a think tank. It was, a unique quirk of St. Paul law is that citizens can propose a tenant to then be voted on. And it's like, they just put all the craziest things in there. And one of the craziest things was that the rent control cap is going to apply to new development and luxury buildings, which doesn't make any sense. But effectively what that did is it it took all the incentive for developers to build and they all just shut down. And so we're going to, it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out yeah. in the long term because it can't stay as it is. Yeah, it's a really fascinating little socioeconomic uh, case study we get to watch play out here. And so, unfortunately, what we have is um, politicians inserting themselves in economic decisions for a political end, right? So it, it, it's a political thing that's impacting an economic situation. So you've got people who are not fully educated or, or don't want to see the full economic picture impacting the economics, but it's for a political purpose, right? Mm-hmm. So we've got this kind of crossover between the two, which is, I think, inappropriate because the people making the decisions here either don't fully understand the economic impact or just choose to ignore it because they want to make their statements and they want to have this, this stance regardless of what the actual outcome is. Because like Anthony said before, the outcome that's created by rent control is never the outcome that is yeah. proposed when yeah. pitching it. And, and so I don't know if you guys do uh, book reviews or book recommendations on this on our podcast. We sure, do. absolutely. Um, Hit us up. Basic Economics by Thomas Saul. I was reading this leading up to the rent control uh, vote in Minneapolis and St. Paul. 
in the somewhere in the first third or so, there's a good. It's like second chapter. Yeah, it's good. Second chapter is a deep dive on the rent control concept, hmm. and it just reinforces all the stuff we just mm-hmm. chatted about. It's not a good solution, and the most for me, the most frustrating part is Minneapolis and St. Paul have been historically doing so much to do what's needed to fix the pricing issue, which is increased density, increased development, incentivized development. And then for whatever reason, this one thing is thrown in the mix, which completely screws everything up. Yeah, yeah. it's with politics, you get voted in based on intention, not on outcome. Yeah. And that's a problem. Outcome's the next when, guy's when, problem. Well, that's exactly. the one thing we don't do in this podcast is politics. Exactly. <laughs> but if you if you really think about it, like the reason that they took 3%, and I find this really fascinating is they looked over Especially a this year. year. Yeah. With, with where inflation is 3%. 3% and usually it's, rent, it it's usually like 3% hegged the CPI, that. right? <laughs> So what they did is they said over the last 20 years, the average rent growth in St. Paul has been 3%, which if you think about it, it's like, that's not, that's not crazy. That's not basically like it, inflation. Basically inflation. Mm-hmm. So, inflation it's, used to be. so it's not right. as predatory as people think. But the problem is if you look at wage inflation since the early 2000s, like it's stagnated, if not gone down. So it's the problem isn't that rent is too much. It's that people's wages aren't increasing proportional so that they can keep pace with that. Yeah, I think That's it's a an different inflation issue. inflation adjusted wage. Because you look at the wages, the wage increases, and, and they look like they're going up. But when you adjust for inflation, they're flat. Exactly. So it, that's the piece. So where are you guys kind of pivoting to? Or where are you going to start to focus? Well, yeah, to answer your question, like how does that impact us? We, we developed the majority of our portfolio in St. Paul. And because of when we purchased... Our, our, our assets and where we're at in those business models and what our business model is and our underwriting, it's not going to be a huge impact uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the majority of the stuff that we have in St. Paul, we bought long enough ago where we're primarily through the reposition phase and we're pretty conservative when we underwrite these things and we've only had 3 to 4% built in after the reposition phase. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so that piece is a problematic. Yeah. Uh, number two, um, even though we know that this is going to get adjusted over the next year, we still want to kind of operate under worst case scenario and say, okay, let's just pretend this sticks. Like, what do we need to do to make sure that a couple of our more recent deals don't get negatively impacted? Yeah. And there's still other avenues where you can increase your income without increasing the rent, right? Mm-hmm. Ratio utility bill back, uh, fully uh, charging for parking, uh, pet fees, and other amenities. Like, there's a bunch of stuff that you can add value to the property with and get paid for that doesn't actually increase the rent. Mm-hmm. So there's workarounds there. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to actually need to lean into those because you know they're already backpedaling this. But yeah. we are shifting our focus until they get their act together in St. Paul uh, over to Minneapolis and first year suburbs. Um, and then as soon as they get their act together, we love St. Paul. We want to keep investing there, but the incentive, at least in the short term, is gone. Mm-hmm. So hopefully they fix it. Quick uh, goals for uh, 2022. Like, What are you guys uh, looking to... Uh, accomplish you know next year so in the next year we're we're expanding our focus into the western suburbs just in the first ring of minneapolis and the twin cities so that's going to be really exciting as we like we're vertically integrated so that what that Mm -hmm. means for the listeners if they're not familiar is that we have a property management company in-house we staff our leasing agents our maintenance repairs like all of that so that we're the ones that are working with our residents and historically because we're focused in saint paul we were hesitant to branch out too far from like the central hub. Well, now with St. Paul being off market or offline, we're, we're forced to start looking abreast, which is cool because it, there's a lot of opportunity out there. So we're starting to look at larger complexes um, in places like Golden Valley, Richfield. Okay. Uh, just still, we have so much confidence and love for the Twin Cities in general. Like from a macroeconomic standpoint, yeah. it's brilliant. It's yeah. so strong. 
there's these political things that are hard, but in the meantime, like you, it's an you opportunity. Just, yeah, you yeah. pivot, you adapt, you find where the opportunity has gone. Yeah. And I know you guys have grown. I mean, obviously, uh, even over the last couple of years, yeah. um, what's the growth like, you know, just internally? I mean, you've got what, like four or five employees now? Yeah, we need a lot more. I mean, that's what that's, do you mean? If anybody's out there, uh, that's yes. That's, 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 that's out there looking. The world. Yeah. Maintenance and construction. That's okay. the big one. We've got a lot of good uh, key vendor relationships that uh, you know we've again back to relationships. We've built some really good relationships with a couple key local vendors who are uh, providing support on the maintenance and construction side. We'd love to have more of those in house as employees. Mm-hmm. So broadcasting to the world. If you know anybody, maintenance construction on that side of things. Uh, we'd love to love to talk to them, um, and then always management and leasing. Um, you know, we've got enough uh, on hand to, to to do that now. But we've got a lot of growth plans, so we want to hire ahead of that and build that mm-hmm. team up ahead of time. So management and maintenance first—that's the biggest okay. need, and that's honestly, I think, the pinch point for everybody these days. Um, but if you're listening, and that's you, <laughs> Dan at InvictusMultifamily.com, shoot me an email. Um, yeah, where can they find you? You know, obviously uh, online. You know, handles whatever. Yeah. yeah, we can we can wrap it up there. Yeah, yeah. Find us at InvictusMultifamily.com. That's I N V I C T U S. And, and really quick, and, and really quick, you were able to keep the name, wasn't there? Some uh, <laughs> was, yeah. okay. wasn't there a season and so this, <laughs> this is a funny story that's worth telling. Wait. So. So, tell me, tell me how this all shook out because I'm I'm very so interested, and then we can we can we cut had, it there. So naming the quickest rebrand, yeah, and then another rebrand, a one day rebrand. <laughs> so so naming a company is hard, and Dan and I went back and forth on a couple of different names. We finally landed, and this was during the Duluth days, like when we we're closing that deal, and we we're just forming our relationship and saying, okay, what's this company that we're going to build together. And we said Veritas Capital. I still like that. I still name. like that name. So, but it turns out there's a billion dollar company in New York who also really likes that name. Mm. And literally, we shoot a video on a Monday and put it out to the world. Hey guys, we have joined forces. Dan and I are working together. Veritas Capital. It's like, logos blah, blah. done. Logos, everything. Websites done. Everything. Within literal 24 hours. We've received a cease and desist from the lawyers. <laughs> and we're like, gave me a FedEx overnight mail from Manhattan. Yeah, so we pivoted the next day. To Did you both crap your pants? No, no. <laughs> Laughed. And this was funny. Son of a. It just you know any news. It just tells you like okay, people, you have more reach than you thought. That's yeah. cool. And so we pivoted and we went to Invictus Capital. And it was actually a good, a great little uh, content piece because it gave us yeah. something to post about. Like, hey, check sure. this out. This is nuts. Kind of annoying, but also yeah. kind of funny. So, but it. it's like, it, I think Facebook has the that slogan, move fast and break things. You have to know what things are okay to break, right? And which ones are not okay. When it comes to investing in real estate, like the deal <laughs> can't break. Like you got to be very careful and hold that with fragile like glass gloves or whatever. But when it comes to other things like naming the company, coming up with the business cards, like a lot of people... They stall out because they think that stuff really, really matters. And it's like, it really doesn't. You no, know, move fast, yeah, break just, things. Yeah. It's going to be okay. Yeah, look past that. I, and I enjoy your guys' content, you know, as well, you know, watching you guys on social, watching you, you know, you guys do podcasting and all and have some interviews uh, as well and a, a good, a great book. Um, so if the, you know, the listeners want to pick that mm-hmm. up too, uh, plug that. And then uh, I just want to say, you know, um, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy days because I know uh, it's valuable. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, I really appreciate it's you. It's been Ryan. too long. It has. Yeah, it I know calls. Zoom calls and everything else with this him. crazy world that we still live in, yeah. and 
the you know the variants uh, Omicron whatever it's going to be around it's going to be the next thing you know Megatron is going to be the next thing. <laughs> it's going to it's going to just fun. yeah it's it's just going to keep you know uh, things interesting yeah. you know and and the unfortunate thing in our worlds though like we have to get out there and see people yeah we have to go evaluate deals we have to go see homeowners we have to go see clients um, you know, you just, you gotta just, you know, put yourself, you we're know, the right. we adapt, yeah. you know, the best we, can. we adapt, we deal with what's going on. So I love it. Make it happen. So yeah. if we do end up going into quarantine here in the next couple of months and like the world goes back into lockdown and your <laughs> listeners are finding themselves just at home bored, go pick up the book, um, passive investing made simple. And if you haven't and noticed, like these guys are a just wealth of knowledge. So if they recommend a book, I, I recommend you looking it up, actually reading or getting an audio. Audio. I was going to say yeah. that just came out too. So if you're not a reader, but you're a listener, audio it up. You got Anthony's beautiful voice serenading you to sleep. <laughs> I don't know about Cap beautiful, and- but... Turns out, so I so we wrote, I, we wrote the book Passive Investing Made Simple, which you can pick up at thepassiveinvestingbook.com or go to Amazon. Um, we hit number, number one, one. That was yeah, pretty I was cool. It's fun, um, and that's cool. People think writing a book is hard. It turns out I learned reading that, it. Reading it is way harder. It's like <laughs> it was like pulling teeth. It was so uncomfortable. <laughs> So if you guys read that, if you listen to that book, please take it with a grain of salt. I'm not a professional narrator. Um, so be kind, but, um, but the content, <laughs> yeah, the content is worth it. Well, so. no one likes the sound of their own voice. Though, so. That's true. That's true. true. I can confirm it's legit. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks guys. Yeah, and thank, thank you. you to the listeners. Uh, we'll be back with another episode, but uh, hopefully you enjoyed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.